Hello people, welcome to another episode of my podcast My book is better than yours I could find a better name, but please don't judge a book by its cover Today's book received interesting reviews For example, The Times A concise, thought-provoking book on entrepreneurship. Forbes, a spectacular book on economics. Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook. This book delivers completely new and refreshing ideas on how to create value in the world. Elon Musk, CEO of SpaceX and Tesla. Peter Thiel has built multiple breakthrough companies and Zero to One shows how. So, who's Peter Thiel? He co-founded PayPal and Palantir, made the first outside investment in Facebook, funded companies like SpaceX and LinkedIn, and started the Thiel Fellowship, which encourages young people to put learning before university. And this is his book, Zero to One, Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. Zero to One is about how to build companies that create new things. This book offers no formula for success. The writer has noticed that successful people find value in unexpected places, and they do this by thinking about business from first principles instead of formulas. One of his students, Blake Masters, took detailed class notes. In Zero to One, Peter has worked with him to revise the notes for a wider audience. Every time we create something new, we go from zero to one. The result is something fresh and strange. Unless we invest in the difficult task of creating new things, companies will fail. So the best paths are new and untried. Startups operate on the principle that you need to work with other people to get stuff done. But you also need to stay small enough so that you actually can. Small size affords space to think. Because this is what a startup has to do. Question received ideas and rethink business from scratch. The first step to thinking clearly is to question what we think we know about the past. Take, for example, the short-lived dot-com mania that started in September 1998. Dot-com mania was intense but short. 18 months of insanity from September 1998 to March 2000. It was a Silicon Valley gold rush. There was money everywhere. Every week, Dozens of new startups competed to throw the most lavish loans party. Paper millionaires tried to pay with shares of their startup stocks. 
Sometimes it even worked. Irrationally, appending.com to your name could double your value overnight. When Peter was running PayPal in late 1999, nobody had any use for that product except the journalists, who voted it one of the 10 worst business ideas of 1999. So the team decided to create a way to send and receive payments over email. But they didn't have enough customers. So they decided to pay people to sign up. When you pay people to be your customers, exponential growth means an exponentially growing cost structure. With a large user base, PayPal had a clear path to profitability by taking a small fee on customers' transactions. Just as they closed the deal, the bubble popped. The market collapsed. The entrepreneur learned four big lessons from the dot-com crash that still guide business thinking today. 1. Make incremental advances. Small incremental steps are the only safe path forward. 2. Stay lean and flexible. Don't plan. Planning is arrogant and inflexible. Instead, you should try things out. Iterate and treat entrepreneurship as agnostic experimentation. 3. Improve on the competition. 4. Focus on products, not sales. If your product requires advertising or salespeople to sell it, it's not good enough. Technology is primarily about product development, not distribution. Entrepreneurs are always biased to understate the scale of the competition. But that is the biggest mistake a startup can make. When you hear that most new businesses fail within one or two years, your instinct will be to come up with a story about how yours is different. You will spend time trying to convince people that you are exceptional instead of seriously considering whether that's true. The competitive ecosystem pushes people towards ruthlessness or death. A monopoly is different, like Google. Since it doesn't have to worry about competing with anyone, it has wider space to care about its workers, its products, and its impact on the wider world. Monopolists can afford to think about things other than making money. Non-monopolists can't. Monopoly profits. Creative monopolists aren't just good for the rest of society. They are powerful engines for making it better. Apple's monopoly profits from designing. Customers are happy to finally have the choice of paying high prices to get a smartphone that actually works. 
Monopolists drive progress because their profits provide a powerful incentive to innovate. Every business is successful exactly to the extent that it does something others cannot. Monopoly is therefore not a pathology or an exception. Monopoly is the condition of every successful business. All failed companies are the same. They fail to escape competition. Creative monopoly means new products that benefit everybody and sustainable profits for the creator. Competition means no profit for anybody, no meaningful differentiation and a struggle for survival. A great business is defined by its ability to generate cash flows in the future. Technology companies follow the opposite trajectory. They often lose money for the first few years. It makes time to build valuable things, and that means delayed revenue. For a company to be valuable, it must grow and endure, but many entrepreneurs focus only on short-term growth. Numbers alone, like weekly active users, statistics, monthly revenue targets, and quarterly earnings reports won't tell you the answer. Instead, you must think critically about the qualitative characteristics of your business. Analyzing your business according to these characteristics can help you think about how to make it durable. As a good rule of thumb, proprietary technology must be at least 10 times better than its closest substitute in some important dimension to lead to a real monopolistic advantage. PayPal, for instance, make buying and selling on eBay at least 10 times better. Amazon offered at least 10 times as many books as any other bookstore. It is true that network effects make a product more useful as more people use it. Network effects can be powerful, but you will never rip them unless your product is valuable to its very first users when the network is necessarily small. Facebook was designed to get Mark Zuckerberg's classmates signed up, not to attract all people on Earth. Initial markets are so small they often don't even appear to be business opportunities at all. A good startup should have the potential for great scale built into its first design. Creating a strong brand is a powerful way to claim a monopoly. However, beginning with brand rather than substance is dangerous. No technology company can be built on branding alone. Every startup should start with a very small market. It's easier to dominate a small market than a large one.
It was much easier to reach a few thousand people who really needed PayPal than to try to compete for the attention of millions of scattered individuals. The perfect target market for a startup is a small group of particular people concentrated together and served by few or no competitors. This is why it's always a red flag when entrepreneurs talk about getting 1% of 100 billion market. Jeff Bezos' vision was to dominate the online retail, but he very deliberately started with books. Amazon had two options – expand the number of people who read books or expand to adjacent markets. They chose the latter, starting with the most similar markets – CDs, videos and software. Amazon continued to add categories gradually until it had become the world's general store. As you craft a plan to expand to adjacent markets, don't disrupt. Avoid competition as much as possible. Success isn't a matter of chance or design. Long-term planning is often undervalued by our infinite short-term worlds. Entrepreneurs only sell when they have no more concrete vision for the company. Founders with robust plans don't sell. When Yahoo offered to buy Facebook for 1 billion in July 2006, Peter thought they should at least consider it. But Mark Zuckerberg walked into the board meeting and announced, OK, guys, this is just a formality. It shouldn't take more than 10 minutes. We're obviously not going to sell here. Mark saw where he could take the company and Yahoo didn't. A business with a good definite plan will always be underrated in a world where people see the future as random. Venture capitalists aim to identify funds and profit from promising early-stage companies. If they turn out to be right, they take a cut of the returns, usually 20%. A venture fund makes money when the companies in this portfolio become more valuable and either go public or get bought by larger companies. Venture funds usually have a 10-year lifespan since it takes time for successful companies to grow and exit. But most venture-backed companies fail usually soon after they start. VCs hope the value of the fund will increase dramatically in a few years to break even and beyond. The big question is when this takeoff will happen. For most funds, the answer is never. Most startups fail and most funds 
fail with them. The biggest secret in venture capital is that the best investment in a successful fund equals or outperforms the entire rest of the fund combined. This is why investors typically put a lot of more money into any company worth funding. No one can know which companies will succeed. So even the best VC firms have a portfolio. On the contrary, an entrepreneur cannot diversify herself. You cannot run dozens of companies at the same time and then hope that one of them works out well. For the startup world, this means you should not necessarily start your own company. You could be tremendously successful by joining the very best company while it's growing fast. You could have 100% of the equity if you fully fund your own venture. But if it fails, you will have 100% of nothing. Owning just 0.01% of Google, by contrast, is incredibly valuable. More than 35 million. Every great company is unique, but there are a few things that every business must get right at the beginning. A startup messed up at its foundation cannot be fixed. Bad decisions made early are very hard to correct after they are made. As a founder, your first job is to get the first things right because you cannot build a great company on a flawed foundation. When you start something, the first and most crucial decision you make is whom to start it with. Founders should have a prehistory before they start a company together. Otherwise, they're just rolling dice. Everyone in your company needs to work well together. And it's useful to distinguish between three concepts. Ownership, who legally owns the company's equity. Possession, who actually runs the company on a day-to-day -day basis. And control who formally governs the company's affairs. A typical startup allocates ownership among founders, employees and investors. Distributing this function among different people makes sense, but it also multiplies opportunities for misalignment. Most conflicts in a startup erupt between ownership and control. That is between founders and investors on the board. A board member might want to take a company public as soon as possible to score a win for his venture firm, while the founders would prefer to stay private and grow the business. Every single member of your board matters. A board of three is ideal. 
Your board should never accept five people unless your company is publicly held. However, anyone who doesn't own stock options or draw a regular salary from your company is fundamentally misaligned. That's why hiring consultants doesn't work. Part-time employees don't work. Even working remotely should be avoided. A company does better the less it pays the CEO. That's one of the single clearest patterns. High pay incentivizes him to defend the status quo along with his salary, not to work with everyone else to surface problems and fix them aggressively. A cash-poor executive, by contrast, will focus on increasing the value of the company as a whole. Equity is one form of compensation that can effectively orient people toward creating value in the future. Giving everyone equal shares is usually a mistake. Every individual has different talents and responsibilities as well as different opportunity costs. On the other hand, Granting different amounts up front is just as sure to be unfair. The graffiti artists who painted Facebook's office walls in 2005 got stock that turned out to be worth $200 million, while a talented engineer who joined in 2010 might have made only $2 million. Since it's impossible to achieve perfect fairness when distributing ownership, founders would do well to keep the details secret. Anyone who prefers owning a part of your company reveals a preference for the long term and a commitment to increasing your company's value in the future. No company has a culture. Every company is a culture. And a good culture is just what that looks like on the inside. Why work with a group of people who don't even like each other? Since time is your most valuable asset, it's odd to spend it working with people who don't envision any long-term future together. You need people who are not just skilled on paper, but who will work together cohesively after they are hired. You will attract the employees you need if you can explain why your mission is compelling. You should be able to explain why your company is a unique match for him personally. Above all, don't fight the perk war. Just cover the basics like health insurance and then promise that no others can. The opportunity to do irreplaceable work on a unique problem alongside great people. 
Startups have limited resources and small teams. They must work quickly and efficiently in order to survive. And that's easier to do when everyone shares an understanding of the world. Every person in the company is responsible for doing just one thing. Evaluate him only on that one thing. Define roles and reduce conflicts. Internal peace is what enables a startup to survive at all. You're not going to learn those kind of secrets from consultants and you don't need to worry if your company doesn't make sense to conventional professionals. In Silicon Valley, nerds are skeptical of advertising, marketing and sales because they seem superficial and irrational but advertising matters because it works. You may think that you are an exception and that advertising only works on other people, but advertising doesn't exist to make you buy a product right away. It exists to embed subtle impressions that will drive sales later. What nerd means is that it takes hard work to make sales look easy. If you have invented something new, but you haven't invented an effective way to sell it, you have a bad business, no matter how good the product. Advertising can work for startups too but only when your customer acquisition costs and customer lifetime value make every other distribution channel uneconomical. A product is viral if its core functionality encourages users to invite their friends to become users too. If every new user leads to more than one additional user, you can achieve a chain reaction of exponential growth. Whoever is first to dominate the most important segment of a market with viral potential will be the last mover in the whole market. At PayPal, they didn't want to acquire more users at random. They wanted to get the most valuable users first. Selling your company to the media is a necessary part of selling it to everyone else. You should never assume that people will admire your company without a public relations strategy. The press can help attract investors and employers. At the start of the 21st century, everyone agreed that the next big thing was clean technology. People got busy. Entrepreneurs started thousands of clean tech companies and investors poured more than $50 billion into them. So began the quest to clean the world. It didn't work. Instead of a healthier planet, we got a massive clintech bubble. Why did clintech fail? Most clintech companies crashed because they neglected 
one or more of the seven questions that every business must answer. 1. The engineering question. Can you create breakthrough technology instead of incremental improvements? 2. The time question. Is now the right time to start your particular business? 3. The monopoly question. Are you starting with a big share of a small market? 4. The people question. Do you have the right team? 5. The distribution question. Do you have a way to not just create but deliver your product? 6. The durability question. Will your market position be defensive 10 and 20 years into the future? 7. The secret question. Have you identified a unique opportunity that others don't see? If you don't have a good answer to these questions, your business will fail. But the striking thing about the Clintech bubble was that people were starting companies with zero good answers. Only when your product is 10 times better, you can offer the customers transparent superiority. Energy problems are engineering problems. So you would expect to find nerds running clean tech companies. You would be wrong. The ones that failed were run by shocking, non-technical teams. Clintech executives were running around wearing suits and ties. This was a huge red flag because real technologists wear t-shirts and jeans. There is nothing wrong with a CEO who can sell, but if he actually looks like a salesman, he is probably bad at sales and worse at tech. If you like this podcast, feel free to follow me on Spotify or any other platform you use. Until next time, be healthy, be safe, be productive. Ciao!